0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: How good
0: is Australia? Here, yeah, yeah. Those opposite are all smear and no idea.
1: I am voting for the repeal of Medivac.
0: There is no secret deal. A shameful and pathetic attempt.
2: That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Party Room, the final party room for 2019. And what a doozy of a year it's been. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And I'm Frank Kelly from ABC
2: Insiders. And that would be my final Insiders for the year, too. PK. We is... get to
1: bookend the day again, Fran. Yes, we're bookending the how, day how next have year. How the book
2: stood up? Yes, indeed. What a year it has been. <laughs> we're going to get some hardcore reflection, of course. It's our final F for the year. But PK, the government had a last minute win, really, in the sort of second to last day of this sitting year. And there hasn't been many sitting weeks. this year only 13 of them or something. I keep saying that because I think that's a staggeringly low number. A lot of people would kill for that work rate. But on Wednesday, they did finally get to repeal the Medivac legislation hasn't even been in for a year. I am voting for the repeal of Medivac Order. because I am satisfied that the conditions that led to Medivac being passed aren't the same as the conditions today. The world in which this vote takes place is different and I thank the government for working productively with me to make sure of that. So that was Jackie Lambie, tearful, as you can hear. She's been under a lot of pressure. Um, senators are under a lot of pressure when they find themselves to be the casting vote in a, a, a bill like this that has sound so political. But I don't know about you, But I thought there. She was saying she had a deal with the government. If you look at everything she said, she said I put to the government a proposal. I can't talk about what I'm proposing. Sounded like a deal, but government Senate Leader Matthias Cormann.
0: There is no secret deal.
2: Let me repeat that again. There is no secret deal. There is no secret.
1: Okay, so no secret deal. Okay, so the government claims there's no secret deal. Uh, Jackie Lambie clearly thinks she has a deal. Yeah. She also won't tell us what the deal is because... Because it is a secret. She says it's a secret for national security reasons. But in some ways we have an idea because it was already leaked and the government has not been completely refuting it, which is the New Zealand offer. So what we know about the New Zealand offer is it's been on the table, I think, since 2013. Am I right about the year? Yeah, 2013. That's right. So it's been a long time. New Zealand offering to resettle, what is it, 150 refugees a year? So Jacinda Ardern has kept that on the table. In fact, she's done an interview on Sky News as we're recording this on a Thursday morning. It's just gone to air where she's reiterated that the deal is still on the table. So the idea is that Jackie Lambie has got a commitment that these offshore detainees essentially get put to New Zealand as well so that more of them are taken off offshore detention. When Scott Morrison was asked this direct question at his press conference where he proclaimed Medi back dead a year after it was enacted when they'd lost the numbers, he said essentially kept the door open that resettlement options are being kept on the table. He didn't say, no, there's no way they're going to New Zealand. And he was given that chance.
2: That's true. He was. But their original position on New Zealand was no. When Labor was um, contemplating it and pushing it, um, the coalition's position was, no, this will send a signal to people smugglers. It's a backdoor to Australia. It'll be seen as Australia going soft. So that was their public position. Then the rhetoric changed a little and they've kept all resettlement options on the table. New New Zealand is obviously one of those. But the government has been privately saying there is no New Zealand offer unless there is a closed back door, unless there is a lifetime ban on anyone who's sent to New Zealand from offshore. So that's the government's position. And they haven't been talking about it publicly. My understanding is that the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, has really been strongly of the view that you've got to get the US deal done. That's the US deal. They were going to take 1250 it looks like now they'll only take about 900 all up. Once that's done and again I understand that should be wound up early in the new year um, first few months of the new year, then the New Zealand offer can be considered but only with that condition in it. and again Jacinda Ardern was asked about that because New Zealand said well we're not going to play ball with that we don't want a two-tier system. so she made it very clear that if that's Australia's rules so they're going to have to we're going to have to put it in place domestically it's going to have to be domestic legislation to put in place that lifetime ban and
1: I'm imagining that that that. That is part – we're all imagining – I'm imagining imagining. this is part of that deal with Jackie Lambie. Uh, That's right. And also that Jacinda Ardern didn't say it was a deal breaker, right? That's key, though. She didn't say, yes, if Australia were to enact those laws, we wouldn't take the refugees. She didn't say that. And I think that is key here, that if the government did construct this legislation that Jackie Lambie would, of course, support, it seems almost certain – That it could happen. Now, the thing is, though, politically, that I think this has been an issue for both the government and actually Jackie Lambie the secrecy around this. Because it's been a massive problem from the right to the left to the centre. People have been critiquing the fact that something has passed. The Australian Parliament, the repeal of Medivac, and we do not know the conditions that come with it.
2: As Penny Wong said, secret deals in the shadows. It's never a good look. As the uh, Labor was making hay with, really, during this vote, all those ministers, all those cabinet ministers, all those backbenchers sitting on the coalition side don't know what they're voting on because it's a
1: secret. That's right. Now, there's been questions to all those coalition MPs. To be honest, I don't think they really care, right? I'm sure they don't. I don't think they feel compromised. I think they're in the coalition. They've signed up to the border protection policies and they're trusting the executive of their government to go forward. So I know it's a great question for journalists to ask, but I don't think MPs are that concerned. Yeah, but let's
2: talk about that. The border protection policies, and this has been the government's argument that this, that Medivac, the Medivac bill, which is about giving a panel of doctors um, the ultimate power to sign off on who's brought over, first recommend to the minister, the minister ticks. off yes or no on medical grounds as recommended to him. If he says no, it goes to a panel of doctors, Okay, That was all about health. The government said it was always about border protection and was a threat to our border protection policies. I've always found that to be a dubious argument myself. And for me, the government's insistence on the repealing of this bill has always been more about politics and the government being able to sort of beat its chest about being strong on border protection than it was about uh, real concerns about the threat this pose because, let's face it, the Medivac bill only applies to the current cohort of people offshore. Once those people are all gone from
1: Nauru and PNG... That's right. If a new boat no arrived, it doesn't have an impact on those there's arrivals. There's no medivac.
2: So it was always very short term. So why has the government been so ferocious in its
1: insistence that this be be repealed? I think it's politics. But equally, I think going to the political line, the government, after losing the, the, the vote on ensuring integrity, the so-called union-busting bill, did need a political win to end the year on. It felt psychologically, to be clear, that it needed a political win and it has ended the year. With what yeah. it regards as a political politics. win, right? It's about politics. It is. Well, so is so much of what's going on in the parliament. So, and what about
2: the medical concerns and the medical well-being of those people offshore? And I wonder whether the this doctors, deal that Jackie Lambie thinks she has, or this letter that I understand the Prime Minister has written to her, whether that makes any statement or comment or there's been any reassurance about those who are genu- genuinely ill and are judged to be ill actually get timely transferal to Australia for help, because that's been an issue in the past.
1: That's what led to the whole medevac
2: legislation in the first place.
1: Greg Jennett, the ABC's National Affairs Correspondent. Welcome to the party room. How is it over there as the year draws to a close.
0: Well it's party central here because <laughs> as you know at this time of year it's Christmas parties galore all around Parliament House, the Lodge, the other night. It's all going on and you'd have to say the Senators are in particular champing at the bit to get out of here this evening and uh, a lot of others besides.
2: I bet they were. How was it at the Lodge? Were you there? This is the PM's uh, Christmas briefly, drinks? Briefly
0: there was uh, accounts of um, you know lengthy conversations and a uh, very tame sort of almost exhausted uh, media pack that uh, you know <laughs> yeah. did that went through the motions had the pleasantries and moved on
2: yeah all right well it has been a big um, last it's been a big year all round really um and this last week of course has well the last 20, last little while has thrown up this vote on medivac um greg you're there covering all these stories it's pretty hard to get the journalism right when the details are hidden or as penny wong would say the senate is voting on secret deals in the shadows how much do you feel you know about this situation and do you believe, Jackie Lambie believes, she's got to deal with the government?
0: Yep, I reckon she does believe that and I think the broad outlines of it are coming into much clearer focus. So here's a bit of an insight. There were people around this building yesterday, not politicians, who were a party to press releases calling it various descriptions but calling it you know a dark day a shameful day etc who while doing that condemning what happened in the senate the repeal of medivac had also been heavily engaged with Jackie Lambie for a period of time in trying to negotiate whatever it is she's negotiated what do we reckon that is well clearly we think New Zealand is a central part mm. of it it's just a question of timing so piercing some of that Double speak and encrypted speak and trying to decode it has been, I suppose, the main difficulty. Your actual gut about what it is 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 pretty, I think, pretty strong. We, we think it does lead to New Zealand, just a question of when.
2: Yeah, but that, as I was saying to PK earlier... It might lead to New Zealand, but in the meantime, what if someone's really sick? And has Jackie Lambie, perhaps at the urging of some of these groups, I'm not sure, got any reassurances, won any reassurances that the bureaucrats either in, say, PNG or or on Nauru or in the Immigration Department won't get in the way of a timely repatriation of someone who needs medical help?
0: That I don't know. We Obviously, we all know what the government's line on this is. That is that the system that brought 1,000 people over many years out. Uh, that is the, the relevant authorised doctors on the islands deciding this case is beyond their ability to deal with it. They will continue to apply and those doctors can authorise the medical evacuation of people. That, that's what the government says yeah, defaults to but, but you to know, we've, now. we've
2: got at least one court opinion saying that someone died because they didn't get timely medical help because the system mm. didn't work, don't we?
0: Yep, we do. I, I don't know what Jackie Lambie has been assured of about the interim and I know there's an associated concern in the interim about added despair and feeling among detainees who goodness knows what sort of action they could take, you know, under such strain and under such circumstances. I think that's a a live concern at the moment as well.
1: Sure. But, Greg, in terms of the broader politics, I mean, how ordinary Australians would be seeing it, the words secret and deal... It's not helpful for either the government or Jackie Lambie, even if it's about being tough on borders, which we assume most of Australia has generally been sympathetic to if you look at election results. The idea that this has all been done in secret, people generally view with suspicion, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. I mean,
0: particularly with those of us who work in the media, of course, we we want it all. We're not laid a great fan there.
1: of secrecy.
0: No, secrecy doesn't actually sit that well at all. But look, to flip this around, J- Jackie Lambie has obviously been convinced by the argument that removing people from both islands is not going to happen quickly if they're sitting around waiting for other options to emerge. That is to say they don't want to have people deciding between Chicago and and Dunedin or mm. or Florida and Auckland. Mm. They, they want to fill the US caseload and then move on to the second, third country resettlement option. Now, she seems to have been convinced of
2: that. But also, Greg, they don't want people choosing between, say, Chicago or uh, a hospital in Sydney that gets them to Sydney and then the government can't send them back, which is what the government's concern about Medivac was. And we've had Peter Dutton again saying, you know, there's no sense pulling 100 people off Nauru if the next day you've created a pull factor for another boat to come with 150. So the the national security argument too is very much about the government seeing Medivac as being viewed as a chink, a weakening, a softening of the border protection, isn't it? And it seems like Jackie Gladby's been convinced of that.
0: Yeah, no question. And that, I suppose... us back to your your question, Fran, about well, you know, what happens if someone is legitimately ill? How do you reconcile that with Peter Dutton's comments about pull factors? Uh, we can't square that one at the
1: moment. No, to be that's honest. and that's frustrating not being able to square uh, and not being able to give the full story to the public, which is our job. But let's move to another thing, which is a big deal this week, and that's economic news because the Bureau of Statistics figures have showed this week that the economy grew by only. in the September quarter, despite the recent tax cuts for low and middle income earners. Now, that seems to imply that Australian families are saving these tax cuts for a rainy day, paying down debt, all the things that, you know, people do when they're feeling a little nervous about how the economy's going rather than spending them like the government had planned. Here's the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg.
0: The Australian economy remains remarkably resilient in the face of significant global and domestic Economic headwinds. The Australian economy has grown by 1.7 percent through
1: the year. So, so yeah, so it's we well, <laughs> still growing. I mean, we're not in, obviously the economic news could be worse, but uh, it could also be better. So this is clearly the government spinning it as positive news because of the growth, Greg. But really. This news was completely overshadowed because of the parliamentary antics and the Medivac issue. What pressure does it put on the government for further stimulus as we look towards next year, MAIFO first, and then, of course, the budget? How does it change Mm. the optics around all of this?
0: Well, I reckon Josh Frydenberg's cheery disposition and general <laughs> sanguine approach to 1.7%, repeat, 1.7%, a long way down below the traditional average of, of just under three. And we should uh, tells r- us r-
2: perhaps r- remind people that the, um, the, the forecast was two and three quarter percent and we're at 1.7. So, you know, there's some sharp yeah, revising well going below.
0: on. But doesn't his approach yesterday tell us that they're not actually going to do anything? Don't look to the them, don't expect them to be pulling big stimulus levers, or to use their word, quote unquote, panic about the state of the economy. The tax cuts, well, they don't seem to have stimulated very much at all so far. Infrastructure is a long-term thing. That's not showing up either, or not, not as much as the government might have hoped. So the pretty clear signal is we are for surplus. We're ploughing on through EFO towards that in June, July next year. And unless things tank further, no quote-unquote panicked response.
2: Okay, but, you know, before we got these figures... With the Reserve Bank pressuring the government for a while now to do some more to stimulate the government, the government's response has been, well, we've got the 4 or $5 billion worth of tax cuts, or $7 billion, I can't remember, what it is out there. That's going to do the job. Well, it hasn't done the job. What we've seen in these figures is people haven't rushed the shops, they've rushed the bank, as I said earlier, and, and put it on their mortgage. So that stimulus is not happening. The government's now saying, "We'll take a longer view, sure, but what about now? The government has a problem in the short term. At the same time... We've got these shocking education figures coming out, Australia falling down the global tables on reading, writing and arithmetic, falling way behind in a very short period of time, really. You'd think that would be the key productivity driver of an economy, is to get that right. And yet our parliament's really not talking about that. It's talking about Medivac. It's talking about unions. You know, I think maybe we need to have a bit of a switch in policy priorities here. Oh, look, I think
0: that's an absolutely fair argument, Fran, but the thing I see in the Morrison government before, but particularly after their election in May, are they a classic conservative mold. They don't measure themselves and their success by uh, responses to the current situation. It's stay the course and only move when you have to sort of stuff, particularly on the economy. So it, look, I, I think arguments can be advanced that more could be done, should be done. But I just don't think that's the way these guys operate. They have a particular goal in mind. They're not going to deviate from that surplus goal uh, until circumstances demand that they must. Now, I'm not saying that's that's right, but I think it's absolutely the playbook of this government. And Josh Frydenberg's language since those GDP figures tells us just that. You know, he's not mm. talking about shooting for the stars anymore. He's comparing us to uh, Singapore in recession, to Korea, to Germany, you know, countries that are, are negative in their growth. That, I think, is a big insight into into their thinking, regardless of what we might think.
1: Look, let's just move to another big problem for the government, and that's been, I think we just call it what it is, Angus Taylor. The Minister for Emissions and Energy has been a little accident-prone, and uh, a new story has emerged, and look, it's not the biggest deal, but it has become quite embarrassing for the government, and we're recording this on a Thursday morning. I'm sure it will feature in Question Time, the last Question Time of the year, but uh, he's been caught in another controversy because American author Naomi Wolf has released a video recording of a phone call to his office in which she disputes some details in his maiden speech in Parliament. Do you think that your press office should correct a, a lengthy no no a so, financial sorry. review? I'm sorry, I'm mm-hmm. sorry to cut you off, but his press office has
0: corrected that view.
2: So the, let me this,
0: just the assertion is that Naomi Wolf was present but not in at Oxford at that time. So Not that she was campaigning against
2: Christmas in any way.
1: So in this maiden speech, Angus Taylor has spoken of political correctness and the debate over a Christmas tree at Oxford in 1991, which he mentioned that uh, Naomi Wolf lived down the corridor for him. from him. Well, she has, you know, been trying to contest the facts in this maiden speech since it's been revealed, saying... I wasn't at Oxford and I didn't campaign against Christmas. In fact, she apparently loves Christmas. She's a big fan of Christmas. Can't get enough. Hanukkah, all all events, thinks they're wonderful. But either way, this is becoming like it's just another... Embarrassing incident for Angus Taylor, isn't it? And now there's pressure on him to correct the record because she wasn't at Oxford at this time.
0: Well, Labor's made the point, you know, reasonably, I think, that Angus Taylor might have been misleading from his very first contribution when he entered the Parliament in that maiden speech, and it is excruciating to watch that oh, exchange with the office. <laughs> she is forensic <laughs> about her uh, nailing down of the facts where she was in '91, the fact that she doesn't have a problem with Christmas trees <laughs> of any discreet. And this uh, staffer is squirming on the Australian end of the line. Well, there's a Christmas
2: party going on in the background. I think, (laughs) but
0: there was was some commotion. I don't know what it was, but uh, I would recommend people watch it in its entirety. It was 20 something minutes from memory. (laughs) Look add it to the Angus Taylor file of difficulties and he'll lumber through to Christmas with that file. Uh, whether the police aspect of it, the doctoring of the documents aspect is cleared up by um, strike force Garrard between now and then, I guess we're going to find out. He'd be sweating on that being resolved before the parliament ends today, this Thursday as we speak. He is wounded and Labor knows it. And I reckon they'll be back on his case next year.
1: Oh, I think so. They will absolutely be back on his case. Look, if we can just do a bit of a zoom out and just think about 2019, the year that was politically... The unexpected election win of the Morrison government was obviously the moment of the year. I mean, there's no debate. You mean about, how we got it all yeah, wrong? Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> there was a bit know. of that. Okay, got it all wrong, but in my view, got it all wrong based on the data provided, which exactly. was you know all public polling saying, hey, we're heading towards a Labor election win. So Scott Morrison wins unexpectedly. Where are we at at the end of the year? The, the government uh, failed to get ensuring integrity up, although it could still have a chance, and it wants to bring it back. It's repealed Medivac. It got its tax cuts legislated as soon as it got elected, Greg. So there have been some victories. And, and right now, as we're recording, Prime Minister announcing a big shake-up of the public service and some significant figures being actually sacked as well in the public service. So, you know, this, this is kind of where we're at so far. But... How do you reflect on the year? What have they achieved? What have we achieved as a country?
0: Yeah, well, it's a really good question. I think because of the unexpected nature of that election win and the relatively meagre offerings that they walked around the track during the five weeks of the campaign with, I do think that this government is has spent the time since its win trying to work out, you know, what they would do in 2020. I mean, I agree with you. There's not much to show for 2019 in in a legislative sense. There have been responses to crises, uh, the drought being one of them, weak economic growth. We've discussed there hasn't actually been much of a response beyond the tax cuts there. There is a view that government will redefine itself in budget season next year. Yeah. So,
2: Yeah, my sense of that exactly is that it's been management because they didn't have a lot of sort of forward-thinking policy because most of them, and Scott Morris and Alex concede, was the exception, but nearly all of them thought they were going to lose. So they didn't have a forward policy projection. But management is what's been going on, as you say, response mm-hmm. to the drought, response to aged care conditions, those sorts of things. Um, but we need to see some leadership in policy around those things like – you know, education, for instance, productivity, by and large, so that needs to change. But my perception is too, Greg, and I wonder if you felt that there on the ground in Parliament House that in this last week or two, Labor has found its mojo a bit. Sure, the Prime Minister's had a, a good, strong win this week with Medivac getting passed with the support of Jackie Lambie, but really, last week we saw Labor emerge in the way they haven't been around um, that place. You know, they've been grief stricken at that loss. That were shocked. Yeah. That were traumatized. But I just thought they had a little bit of a sort of zip in their step last week that hasn't been seen. And next year, the dynamics of the parliament might be a little more even perhaps. I'm not sure, but that's how it felt from a distance.
0: No, no. And they, even people I would regard as honest within the caucus were saying to us privately this week, look, we're in a sulk, we're in a funk for a period of time. We're starting to feel a bit more like a team up for the challenge now at the end of this year. And, you know, look, parliamentary combat doesn't amount to much in the community, they don't watch it or absorb it as we do, but it counts for a lot in the general mojo, vigour and confidence of a political party. When Mm. they feel they're making good points or good hits in the parliament, a lot of things flow from that. And, you know, you can say what you like about the pursuit of Angus Taylor, but, um, it's working for Labor. It's uniting them, making them get the sniff of blood in their nostrils and uh, and they're on the chase. And that's not the sole function of their parliamentary purpose, but it's helping get them off the funk and,
1: and into the fight. Greg, fantastic. Thanks, guys. Let's shake things right up, for. Fran. Mm. We've got a few weeks off to forget everything that's happened this year. Let's just try and wipe our minds completely clean. No, we won't do that. But, you know, we'll try. And- a summer
2: data dump. I do it every year. Do you? I As-
1: yeah. uh, just, you know, percul- uh, weird things happen in my mind. I'll just <laughs> go over things. It's a perfect time before amnesia sets in to make some spooky 2020 predictions or, or just, you know, just have a little think about what might happen next year. I think if we learnt anything in 2019, it's that... <laughs> You should never make predictions. Exactly. So this is this just shows that we learn nothing. So we are going to do something that will inevitably be used against us in some way. So, Fran, you go first. <laughs> well, I'm
2: not going to really go out on a limb here. I'm going to state the bleeding obvious, which is we are already experiencing the worst drought pretty much in living memory. We are already experiencing across the country, actually, horrific bushfires and summer has only just started. So I am predicting, sadly, that there will be more fires through this summer and that the reserves of our volunteers and our firefighters will be tested, as will our resources, and that and, and the drought, of course, is not going to go away. And by come February, um, there will be some of those regional and rural towns who are running out of water or have run out of water, and this is going to be even more acute than it is now. So we will start off the year where we've essentially finished it, which is with a debate about climate change and energy policy, and the government will be under pressure to do more on energy and emissions
1: which brings me to my prediction because the most accident prone minister hands down the winner for 2019 has been Angus Taylor has been a headache for the government he happens to be as you just mentioned the energy and emissions minister so in some ways he has one of the most important portfolios for the government and for our country And yet he's been dogged by controversy even this week. It's, you know, a feminist author, uh, Naomi Wolf, but that's not even, you know, the biggest story. There have been so many others. The grasslands and now this police investigation, which no doubt will get more news on over coming days or weeks and when this podcast is having a little break. But I think the Prime Minister, I cannot predict or I'd be silly to a date, but I think the Prime Minister will have to shake things up in his own front bench and there will be at some point a ministerial reshuffle. And my view is the Prime Minister will not demote Angus Taylor in a, in the way Labor wants, wants him to, you know, stand him down. But perhaps he won't have this portfolio throughout 2020. I don't think we're going to end 2020 with Angus Taylor necessarily being the Energy and Emissions Minister. But either way, do you think... I mean, you've seen some of those amazing pictures by some of the best photographers in the press gallery. The PM looks sometimes like he is over this. He is so over this. He cannot be bothered with this. He wants to be talking about the messages. He wants to talk about, you know, Labor is high taxing. Look at us. We're managing the economy well still with these economic headwinds. He doesn't want to be talking about Angus Taylor and grasslands or, you know, Naomi Wolf and videos from the US and Christmas, a war on Christmas. I mean, we all like. Christmas. Don't be ridiculous. It's a great thing. We love Christmas. How good is Christmas? All right, that's it. We will be on Twitter. I mean, I don't know, Fran probably won't be. I, I actually, I don't think I'm going to be. I think I've been banned over Christmas this year, so you might not see me over Christmas, <laughs> but at some point I'll emerge. And you can email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. You've got a fantastic holiday coming up. I'm taking my daughters to see the Parthenon. And that is a big deal in our family, given they have been enduring Greek school now since pretty much they were babies. So this is quite a reward for all of their Greek classes. Saturdays have always been full of so much language, indoctrination and culture that they need the reward. So they're going to see that building. They can't wait. We do projects at home. They've made slides about ancient Greece. Fantastic. We are ready, Fran. How Fan- about you? Fantastic. I'm going to do, get a lot of beach time. I've
2: actually doing Insiders for the last four or five months. I've been spending half the week away from my home in Sydney down in Melbourne to, to do Insiders on a Sunday morning. So I'm just going to get home,
1: go to the beach. Go to the beach. All right, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful break. We love you all. We actually do. We do. We love you all. Please, we love you all. Please keep loving us because we will be back. Make sure you keep subscribing because we want to be there ready for you when the parliamentary year begins. See you, Fran. See you, PK.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.